Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The effect of the Voluntary Climate Change Accords adopted by 195 nations at the 21st Conference of the Parties, known as the COP21, is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Those accords may be found on the United Nations website and have been severely criticized due to the time for compliance and the lack of enforcement provisions, among other issues. A summary of those accords was published in the New York Times on December 13, 2015. In the opinion of Dr. Guy McPherson, a professor emeritus of natural resources, evolutionary and conservation biology from the University of Arizona, the accords are smoke and mirrors and will have no effect on climate change. They could well cause increase in carbon emissions. Professor McPherson is the author, along with Carolyn Baker, of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, both of whom were guests on Radio Curious in September 2015. Their interviews may be found on the Radio Curious website. McPherson believes that the best way to respond to the peril of the climate crisis is for each person to go inward and consider who we are reach out to our relatives and friends, and foster the personal connections that are important to us before it's too late. When Professor Guy McPherson and I visited by phone from his home in rural New Mexico on December 13, 2015, we began when I asked him for his thoughts about the COP21 Accords. Well, I have a few thoughts, and none of them are particularly good. The deal commits countries to try to keep global temperatures well below 2C, and the target, at least in the long term, is 1.5 degrees Celsius above baseline. Well, we've known for a long time that even with collapse of industrial civilization, more than 2C is locked in. It's baked into the cake. So the deal that has been reached is no deal at all. It can't be accomplished. It is strictly voluntary. It relies heavily on a technology that is neither reliable nor scalable, that of carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS. And finally, and least importantly, it fails to put a price on emissions. So all of that, for me, stacks up to hardly problem solved. Rather, problem is the can that gets kicked down the road for another five years when voluntary cuts are expected to be made. Let's uh, go back to the first thing you said, 2C, and describe what that means on the material plane of planet Earth. Yeah, 2 degrees C has been long promoted as a target. We cannot go 2 degrees Celsius above baseline, baseline meaning approximately 1750 or the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, since we started burning fossil fuels at relatively large scale. Well, we're already at about one degree Celsius above baseline, and that was a scientific target established by the United Nations Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases in October 1990. It wasn't long after that that a neoclassical economist by the name of William Nordhaus 
decided to promote the idea of two degrees Celsius. This guy, by the way, is not a climate scientist. But stunningly, if you repeat a lie often enough, it comes to be known as the truth. And so that lie was repeated often enough and now has become policy. We can't exceed one degree C without triggering the kinds of self-reinforcing feedback loops that we have indeed triggered. And instead, the world's leaders are shooting for two degrees Celsius and failing to point out to the uninformed populace that two degrees C is already baked in. There's no way to avoid it at this point, even with collapse of industrial civilization today or tomorrow. So let's uh, break this down. The self-reinforcing feedback loops that you discussed in our conversation of September of 2015, I'd like you to recap what they are for our listeners who may have missed those visits. Sure. The self-reinforcing feedback loops, the, the analog, is the snowball at the top of the hill. It starts out small, but then it starts rolling down the hill. And the further it goes, the more snow it picks up. So the bigger it gets and the faster it goes. And the longer it continues to do that, the more rapidly it proceeds down the hill and the more capable it is of picking up snow in a hurry. So the snowball effect, in this case, refers to the process by which warming leads to more warming. And let me give a couple of examples that are well documented in the literature at this point. Ice in the Arctic Ocean is disappearing quite rapidly, particularly since the late 1970s. And one of the consequences of that disappearing ice cover is that there is more blue ocean exposed. As a consequence, the sun striking the global north is reflected less because there's less white ice and absorbed more because there's this dark blue ocean capable of absorbing the sun's radiation. And so the less ice there is, the less reflectance, the more absorption there is, and so the ocean warms. As it does, it melts the ice. So that's a classic self-reinforcing feedback loop. Another one also from the Arctic is methane. Clathrates or hydrates, those are synonyms, chemical cages around methane in the relatively shallow seas under the Arctic Ocean. And as the Arctic Ocean warms, even just a little bit, it's enough to release those methane molecules from their cages, from their clathrates, and contribute to local and then regional and then global warming. And as a consequence, the faster that goes, the, the more hydrates are, are broken open and release methane into the atmosphere, the faster it's capable of going because it gets warmer and warmer. And the warmer it gets, the more methane is released, and the more methane is released, the warmer it gets. So those are a couple of big ones that face us. You said even if it warms just a little bit, how much is a little bit? Ocean temperatures, according to the referee journal literature, ocean temperature increase of only one degree Celsius is sufficient to contribute to rapid release of methane into the atmosphere from beneath the shallow seabed. And anybody who's been paying attention to Arctic Ocean measurements the last few years knows that the relatively shallow Arctic Ocean is warming much more rapidly than that. So it doesn't take a lot of temperature increase to have a profound influence. And here's another example of 
a minor change that produces a major outcome. Say you're walking around at a party and your favorite drink has a bunch of ice in it. You start and it's half ice and half of your favorite beverage. And two hours later, it's still at zero degrees centigrade at, at freezing because it's still got a little bit of ice left on it. As soon as that little bit of ice is gone, the temperature of the liquid warms up to room temperature or to the temperature of your hand very, very quickly. So as long as you have a little bit of ice, you can keep the temperature at freezing. But once that little bit of ice is gone, the heat from your hand and from the room contributes to a very rapid rise in temperature of that liquid in the cup. It doesn't take much to trigger major changes. I want you to apply that to a material plane, but going back to our visit in September of 2015, you said that now the temperature increase is 1.17 degrees Celsius above the baseline, which is determined to have been at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in 1750, approximately 265 years ago. Right, and, and that's the global average temperature above that baseline condition. Taking that global average temperature now and the self-reinforcing feedback loops that you say were baked in when, it was, uh, when the global average temperature was at one degree above Celsius, using what you just said about the ice in the glass staying at freezing or staying at zero Celsius until it's all melted. How does that fit in to the large material plane? Once we trigger these self-reinforcing feedback loops, we have triggered exponential change. So we're no longer within the realm of linear change where the temperature increases at a predictable amount. Instead, we have entered the arena of exponential change. And so imagine somebody offers to pay you a penny a day or even a dollar a day for the rest of the year. And somebody else says, well, instead of that, dollar a day, I'll give you a penny and I'll double it each day until the end of the year. Well, of course, anybody who has actually done the math or who understands the exponential function knows that the dollar a day turns out to be not so swift by the end of the year. I mean, it's better than nothing, by all means. But the doubling of the penny to start with, from one cent to two, then two to four, and four to eight, and so on, ends up with a lot more money at the end of any reasonable period of time, like, say, a year, than starting with a dollar or five dollars and just sticking with that same rate through the year. So what we're seeing now is the equivalent of the small blob of algae on a pond, and the small blob of algae, which we can barely even see, by the next day it's bigger, and by the next day it's twice that size, and, and now we're at the point that it's a quarter full or half full, and tomorrow or the day after tomorrow the pond is covered with algae, and we just haven't been paying attention to this point. That's the analog with where we are today with respect to abrupt climate change. Very rapid change is underway, and the events are proceeding faster than we humans are capable of keeping up. For our listeners, if you link to the Radio Curious website, that's radiocurious.org, you can find a summary of the uh, highlights of the climate change accord that was reached in Paris and published on December 13, 2015. And Guy McPherson 
I'd like your comments on these agreements. Establishing agreements as voluntary is bad enough, and that's what has been done. Expecting people to make changes five years from now, that is, when the next politician is in office and will have to pay the price, is another absolutely aggravating step that has been taken with this accord. So it's voluntary. Changes aren't expected to take effect for another five years, just as has happened with every one of these conference parties' agreements. It's always something that is down the road. It's not something we ever have to deal with today. In addition... We have put so much carbon into the atmosphere, 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was the absolute upper limit that we absolutely could not cross until, of course, we did in the 1980s. And so now the agreement from Paris relies upon a technology, carbon capture and sequestration, that is neither reliable nor scalable. So we have built in, effectively, negative carbon emissions. Nobody even knows what that means. Nobody knows how to accomplish that. Negative carbon emissions? So it sounds to me like we're relying upon high-energy strategies to take carbon dioxide out of the air at a faster rate than we're putting carbon dioxide into the air. It sounds to me like we're, we're relying on civilization to cure a predicament created by civilization. And as Tim Garrett pointed out, Now, years ago, with his growing and very solid body of research, civilization itself is a heat engine. To turn off the heat, you have to turn off the heat engine. Well, we also know now, based on research conducted by James Hansen and others from November 2011 onward, that turning off civilization produces very, very abrupt temperature rise. So we're in this classic situation of you can turn off the heat engine, at which point the heat really goes runaway because of the absence of global dimming. Or you can keep the heat engine going, and it'll keep warming the planet. It really is a classic damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't sort of approach. Our guest is Guy McPherson, a professor emeritus from the University of Arizona, where he taught natural resources, evolutionary biology, and conservation biology. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Your thoughts on the politics, uh, Guy McPherson? You know, we've known in the scientific community for quite a long time now that only collapse of civilization prevents runaway climate change. You think anybody's going to vote for that? I mean, politically, there is no stance that a, quote, politician could take that would be consistent with turning off the heat engine and, and not get tarred and feathered. I look forward to the day when we have a presidential debate between two or three individuals And they're arguing about who can collapse civilization the fastest because it's it's killing us all and it's serving as a heat engine. But I don't think I'm going to see that anytime soon. When uh, you say collapse civilization, what do you mean? I mean no fuel at the filling stations, no water coming out of the municipal taps, no food at the grocery stores. I mean none of this, none of this that we take for granted in the society. The ability to travel around the globe for relatively little money and a very small investment in time with airplanes and cars and trains and so forth. Those things we just take for granted because we haven't ever known anything else. But all of that is, of course, very, very recent with respect to the age of Earth. And even the notion of civilization, of food storage, 
which allows human populations to go into overshoot. Even civilizations are new in terms of the planet. Our genus has been around. The genus Homo has been around for about 2.8 million years, and it's only been within the last few thousand years that any civilization arose. Industrial civilization, of course, is, is pegged at about 265 years ago, as you indicated, to about 1750. And, of course, we just keep going faster. Every year we emit more carbon than we did the year before. And every year we see global average temperature rise when compared to previous years or at least at lengths of time that are relevant and appropriate when we rule out things like massive volcano ejecta and so on. If we take what you're saying about a politician, politicians, one or many, turning off civilization, that brings about the collapse that you've talked about. And if we do nothing, you're predicting a similar collapse. That's right. There's a couple of things. One, we can't sustain the unsustainable forever, and this set of living arrangements is clearly unsustainable. So let me ask you in your capacity as a uh, uh professor of evolutionary biology, and relationship to the sixth mass extinction on Earth, which uh, you have said in our previous visits, we are at the beginning, if not in the midst of now, there was adequate uh, changes, adequate mutations among the species, including perhaps ours, that allowed species to survive. What do you see those changes to be? Obviously, I'm asking you to forecast mutations, which is a random event, but I'm still interested in your answer. I just don't see any way that large-bodied organisms, especially large-bodied mammals, with our relative inability to thermoregulate, I just don't see any way that we can handle what's coming at us already Climate change at its relatively slow linear rate since 1750. Climate change is proceeding 10,000 times faster than non-human organisms can keep up in terms of evolution by natural selection. Can you talk about uh, our inability to regulate that you mentioned a moment ago? Yeah, we know that a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees C or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and, and wet bulb temperature means uh, a the temperature equivalent of 95 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% relative humidity. So the temperature goes up, the relative humidity can go down, and you're still at that same heat index. No human survived that beyond a couple or three hours. Survive what temperature? 95, 95 degrees, degrees Fahrenheit. And 100% relative humidity. As being in an overheated sauna. Right. And we just don't have the physiology and the morphology to dump heat fast enough to survive that. And we're familiar with these massive heat waves that strike the planet, strike certain regions now and then, and kill large numbers of people. In almost every case, that's the situation. We can't dump heat fast enough from our bodies to physiologically survive at high humidity and high temperature. And when you get up above 95 degrees Fahrenheit, the relative humidity doesn't have to be 100. It drops down accordingly. So it's a heat index that no longer allows human survival. Guy McPherson, there are other scientists in addition to yourself who are speaking candidly about these issues now. Can you tell us who they are 
and summarize their position that has changed recently? Let me give you a quote from the recently completed meetings in Paris. And it's from Phil McKibben, one of the most ridiculously optimistic people on the planet, said the Paris Agreement will leave us with a planet that is, quote, uninhabitable for human beings. That's an astonishing statement to come from the guy who's been promoting the notion of a mass movement for these many years. One of the really big names is James Hansen, of course, who was head of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies for many years, the leading climate change scientist working for the United States federal government. And he finally realized that two degrees C was a political target, not a scientific target, just about a year and a half ago. And then upon completion of the kick the can down the road proceedings in Paris, he correctly declared COP21 as a fraud. Here's what he had to say in an interview with The Guardian, which came out yesterday. Quote, it's a fraud, really, a fake. He says that while rubbing his head. And then another quote, it's just bullshit. This from one of the leading climate scientists in the world, the guy who gave testimony to the United States Congress in 1988, pointing out the dangers of anthropogenic climate change. And since departing his federal post with the U.S. government, he's starting to speak increasingly candidly about our dire prospects. You tack that on with the in my opinion, unnecessarily optimistic Bill McKibben in the past, who now says that we're, we're leaving a planet that is un- uninhabitable. And I think they've got it right. I think this agreement is smoke and mirrors. It's a fraud. It's not going to make a significant difference in the right direction. I suspect it will make a significant difference. It will cause carbon emissions to increase in future years, as has happened every year for the last 30 years, 21 of those years during which we had a conference of parties meeting to talk about reducing carbon emissions. Where do we go from here? I think the conclusion for us as individuals remains the same as it has been for me and my message for a long time. Where do we go? We go inside. We spend some time getting to know ourselves. We spend time with our communities. I suspect that Bill McKibben is right, that the world that we are facing is uninhabitable by humans. And I've been suggesting that for quite a long time myself. In light of that, let's make use of the time we have with the people we enjoy spending time with. Let's spend time with the ones we love and love the ones we're with rather than pretending, as they're pretending in Paris, that we can maintain the set of living arrangements forever and it'll all be unicorns and butterflies for every year in the foreseeable future. In the uh, grim reality that you pose, what is your estimate as to when it will manifest? Do you mean when will people actually notice at large scale? Yes. That we're in the midst of of death-inducing climate change? Yes, that's my question. Yeah, well, already at least 5 million people a year experience early deaths because of climate change. If you're in the families of the 5 million, I bet you're already noticing. In addition, there are food shortages and water shortages 
as a result of climate change that is underway right now. So the ability of some people to notice apparently is hampered by other things going on in their lives. And that's understandable, considering that we have events like Paris, which is just a show. We have this smoke and mirrors, bread and circuses kind of living arrangement, and it distracts people from the things that seem really important, at least to me. I suspect most people will not think it's going to happen to them, that is, climate change negatively affecting their lives. They won't think it's going to happen until it already does. And I can't predict when that's going to happen for you and me, but for the 5 million who are dying already as a result of climate change every year, for the people who are facing food shortages and water shortages, for the people who are surviving, and especially those who are not surviving, storms that have the power to level cities, like Haiyan and Sandy, and we can go all the way back to Katrina for that matter. It's pretty apparent already. And for me, the question is, what is it going to take before people notice at scale that something's happening here? Even with that question answered, it wouldn't stop of the something that is happening as you describe it. No, it's pretty clear that we have entered the arena of exponential climate change. And so on one hand, I understand people who know but don't want to tell their family members, their friends about it, because there's nothing to be done to stop the kind of abrupt climate change that threatens our species with its continued existence. So for me, I'm of the position that I want to know And so, as a consequence, I go around telling people what I know. Other people say, this is not the kind of thing that I would like to know. I want to keep living my life in ignorance of the situation. And so, I'm not going to tell people. I guess at some level, that's understandable, too, even though it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around. As in, have a hot shower every day. Right. Yes, absolutely. Just keep going till we can't. Well, Guy McPherson, I want to thank you very much for being with us again here on Radio Curious. And uh, I asked you when we spoke in September about an aha or eureka moment, what you want to do with the rest of your life, which I think you just answered, and about a book. Is there a book that you could recommend that's come before your eyes in the past three months? Yes, two, actually. One by the grief walker, Stephen Jenkinson, and... Die Wise is the name of Stephen Jenkinson's book. And a second book that I've only just begun to read is by Sarah Perry, and it's called Every Cradle is a Grave. And in it, she rethinks the ethics of birth and suicide. So I suspect this will challenge every reader or nearly every reader to call into question the thoughts, the beliefs, that they've held for a long time. It certainly is having that effect on me, and I'm only a few pages in. Well, Guy McPherson, thank you once again for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure as always.
Guy McPherson is a professor emeritus of natural resources, evolutionary and conservation biology, who taught for many years at the University of Arizona. He is the author, along with Carolyn Baker, of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. Interviews with McPherson and Baker may be found on the Radio Curious website. The books that Professor McPherson recommends are Every Cradle is a Grave, Rethinking the Ethics of Birth and Suicide by Sarah Perry, and Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul by Stephen Jenkinson. This program was recorded on December 13, 2015.